20. If you need a Bible, you don't have one, raise your hand. We, we have some extras that you can borrow. Does anyone need one? While you're turning there, if you came in late and you're one of the uh, people in the kind of, um, I don't know what you call the phase of life, extended adolescent phase of life, um, you probably don't like that, do you? That, that phase between the time you're like 18 and 40-something and, and you haven't quite gotten life on track, you know that stage? Um, you're in on Sunday nights, we're having a, um, we're starting a, a service for you on Sunday nights. We won't be here, it'll be at my house, it'll be some music, I'll be teaching, there'll be Q&A immediately following the teaching that you can interact with. Um, and so we have several people who are interested. Rob is actually, Linder is actually the one who's starting that. Um, I'm going to be teaching at it uh, for the most part until at least for the next year or so while Rob's finishing school out. You're welcome. That start, you're welcome to come. It starts on August 2nd, so you're aware. All right. Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh, the seventh day is a Sabbath to your Lord God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your, female, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before, you, be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Let me pray. Lord, we are um, exceedingly thankful for your word. You say in Psalm 138 that you will honor your name and you will honor your word. And Lord, we are thankful that you are a God who did not leave us wondering, but you gave us a word from you so that we would know you and know what you're doing, know how it is that you are working among us, how it is that you will work among us, how it is that we can be saved from our sin, 
from the death and corruption and suffering that we see around us, from the wrath that is due to us. We're thankful that you've done that, that you've been gracious enough to do it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you guys ever uh, been confused, you know, kind of out of sorts, not sure exactly how to make do, um, what to do with something? I I feel that way at times. Like when Teresa left town, I feel out of sorts. My wife's out of town. So people, you know, I put on my Facebook this song. It was a joke, but I put on there, you know, ain't no sunshine when she's gone. You know, you've seen that video? And then she's back. And so today I'm going to um, post, I can see clearly now the rain is gone, right? Um, it's because it's going to be a bright, bright, sunshiny day. But the, uh, the wife is home. But we have confusions about things. Christians are often confused about things theologically. Um, for example, the Ten Commandments. What do we do with God's law and the Ten Commandments? Christians are often confused by the topic. They, they have various views. Either A, the Ten Commandments, you know, in no way, shape, apply to me. That's an Old Testament thing. I don't really know what to do with it. Or B, some of the Ten Commandments do. Those that were reaffirmed in the New Testament, those apply to me. Or C, you know, they go, they, well, you know, I don't know. That's all law stuff. Now it's all grace stuff. And so they, they kind of get into all this confusion. Well, some guys were interviewing um, Christians at a convention and were asking them the question about the Ten Commandments, asking them, are, are you a professing believer in Christ? And they were saying yes. And they were asking them, you know, what, what, do, you, what do you do with the Ten Commandments? Have you kept the Ten Commandments? And they all replied, No. So when you see the Ten Commandments is like a moral summary of, you know, like a summary of God's moral character as law. They're like, yeah. And they, have you kept all of them? Well, of course not. No one keeps all the Ten Commandments. We violated them. And they said, well, is God going to allow you into heaven? And they said, yeah. They said, so God required the Ten Commandments to be kept. You didn't keep them, but he's still going to let you into heaven. And they said, yeah. They said, Why? Well, I don't know. Here was the answer that was posited over and over again. I don't, maybe God lowered his standard. You know, I believe in Jesus and uh, that's all it takes. I think God just lowered his standard to get into heaven. Standard of holiness just isn't as high. I was stunned listening to these answers come again and again. In other words... They believed in Jesus, so they were going to heaven. And they believed that when Jesus came, when Jesus came, he demonstrated that God had lowered his holy standard in the law. Now, they wouldn't put it directly that way. Somehow, they had become confused about the gospel and had come to the conclusion that the gospel is synonymous with the idea that there was this old way God did things where he tried to make us keep these Ten Commandments. That was too hard. And so now he sent Jesus, and there's only one thing we have to do, and that's believe in Jesus. In other words, God threw out those old ten really hard laws to keep and replaced it with one really easy law, believe in Jesus. And that was essentially their view of how the law pertains to the gospel. Really, most people that I talk to, even in Christian circles, have no idea how the Ten Commandments have anything to do with the gospel? How does God's law have anything to do with the gospel? We all acknowledge that in some way, 
right? We all acknowledge in some way they demonstrate God's holy character, this holy standard. We all acknowledge that um, in some way they tell us how high God's standard of holiness is and how we've missed it in some sense, but we really aren't sure how it has much connection to the gospel. And I want to be really clear. Jesus Christ did not come to earth to lower God's standard of holiness. He did not come to abolish the Ten Commandments. He did not live the perfect life that we failed to, pay our penalty on the cross that was due to us for the violation of those commandments, raise from the dead, send his spirit, ascend to the right hand of the Father. He did not do that so that he could give us a new, easier law and throw out those old hard laws and demonstrate that somehow God had lowered his standard of holiness. In fact, just the opposite. Jesus is the clearest picture you have of how holy God's standard is. Because Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of God submitted himself to his own law and paid the penalty for our violation of it. Jesus confirmed that God's law is holy and righteous and just. He didn't lower the standard. The whole of Jesus' life and death was about keeping God's holy standard in our place. If people understood the gospel, they would not say, God has lowered his holy standard of the law. They would say, I violated the law. I'm a sinner, and I couldn't keep it. But God didn't lower, lower his standard. He kept his standard in my place. So my goal today, my goal today is simple. I want to show you first that God's law is his holy standard that we cannot keep. It is his holy standard we cannot keep. And second, that the gospel confirms the holiness of his law because Jesus kept it for us. Two things I want to show you. The first thing, the law demonstrates God's holy standard we can't keep. Turn with me to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. I want to look at what the Apostle Paul says about this. Paul has been talking about the Christian life. He had been accused of essentially saying that, you know, you're saved by grace through faith. And look, that's how you're justified. You're forgiven and declared righteous because of that. And and you know what? Even if sin abounds, grace abounds even more. And people are coming in saying, what, shall we sin more then so grace may abound more? And they're misunderstanding and saying, no, no, you don't understand. When you come to faith in Jesus, your whole life changes. Your heart changes. You desire to keep his law, but you're no longer a slave to it. And he goes on to explain what it means to be under the law. And he says, look, when you were under the law, you're now under grace. But when you were under the law, you were a slave to it. It encouraged sin in you. It produced fruit in us that leads to death. The law condemned us. That's what the law did for you apart from Christ. It condemned you. It encouraged sin in you. It enslaved you. It produced fruit in you that led to death. To which he knew he was going to get the response. Well, then is the law sin? If the law did that when I was an unbeliever, then is the law sin? And he answers it. Look at chapter 7, verse 7. What shall we say then? That the law is sin? By no means. The law isn't sin. 
says. In fact, not only does he emphatically say no, but he goes on and presents four truths about the law that demonstrate that the law is not only not sin, but it's holy and righteous and good. Look at the first one here in the rest of verse 7. What then shall we say? The law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Now I want you to hear this. As a Jew and a Pharisee, as a Jew and a Pharisee, Paul always had the law. He had been taught it. And yet he was convinced he was a good person. In fact, we know in Philippians he talks about his early unregenerate state. That's the state prior to when he was born again through faith in Christ. He, he was talking about that state and, and he said, you know, um, I was blameless according to the law. So he thought of himself. I was blameless. I kept it. Paul thought about the law as external righteousness. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But he thought, I'm obedient to it. I'm not a servant. He had the law, but he says, until the law came, I didn't know sin. What does he mean by that then? It's when he realized that the law speaks to the heart and not just external obedience that he realized he was a sinner. See, up until then, he thought he was okay. I'm keeping it. You know, I've asked people these questions. Are you keeping the law? They go, yeah. Oh, yeah. I've never worshipped any idols. I, uh, I go to church every Sunday. I honored my mom and dad. And I, I've never cheated on my wife. I've never killed anybody. You know, I, I've had people even tell me they've never really lied or, or you know. <laughs> There's one. Um, I've never stolen. I've never, done, I've, I've never coveted anything. I, I've, I've kept the law. They, they're in that state where Paul was. And that's why Paul cues in here on the 10th commandment. Look at what he says there at the end. He says this at verse 7, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. Why does he cue in on the 10th commandment? Because coveting speaks of our desires, right? Well, adultery is, is, is a simple, well, I never, I never committed adultery. I haven't cheated on my wife. Now, Jesus comes along and, and explains to us what all that means. But up to this point, in some sense, Paul thinks he has an excuse, but he doesn't have with regard to coveting. Because coveting, you don't really have to act, do you? You're just wanting what your neighbor has. You're desiring it in such a way that you are not thankful for what you have. And Paul knows that that desire is going on. In fact, in Colossians 3, 5, he actually calls coveting idolatry. Why? Because I want something so bad that I'll sin to get it. At some point, the law demonstrated to Paul. At some point, God's Spirit took His law and said to Paul, your external obedience is not sufficient. Your heart is wicked. You're not righteous enough. You're a sinner. You need Christ. This is how Paul can say that at one point he thought of himself where he says, according to the law, I was blameless. And in another letter he talks about the fact that I'm the chief of sinners. Paul understood his life in two different ways. As an unbeliever 
I was blameless, external circumstances of the law. But you know what? Now that I'm a believer and I see the truth, now that Jesus has confronted me, the Spirit has worked in me, I recognize, you know what? I'm the chief of sinners. And you know what? When we truly see the law, we, we realize we're sinners, don't we? Think of the Ten Commandments. I ask people about the Ten Commandments all the time, and, and, and I get all kinds of various responses to what the Ten Commandments are. You know, most people don't know. They, they can name ten of all sorts of other things, but these ten commands that God gives, they can't. I tried it in high school. With high school students, just ask them to name ten beers. That was easy for them to do. Um, ten commandments, not so easy. Those are high school students, right? Um, you know, but everybody can name ten things. For some reason, ten commandments slip past us all the time. But if you think about them and then how Jesus applies them, what they really mean, just the first one, right? You shall have no other gods before me. Has there any, ever been anything that you loved more than God? I.e., you loved so much you would sin to get that thing? Right? You're not doing what God wants, so apparently your love for this thing is more than your love for God at that point in time. You, you shall not make graven image, right? Idols. We participate in idolatry. The difference between our idolatry and their idolatry, we don't make little statues we worship, right? We make name brand cars and clothes and things like that, right? We bow down when we walk into the shopping mall or when we watch, when we want to entertain ourselves in some way or when, I I mean, I could go on, when we go into the buffet, right? The third one is what? Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Well, I don't ever say GD. Right? Here's a question. When you talk of the Lord, when you worship the Lord, when we're singing songs, are you mouthing the words or your heart and mind engaged? Because if you're just mouthing it, if it doesn't matter to you, you're just taking his name in vain. Keeping the Sabbath holy. I mean, most of us treat Sunday like it's a second Saturday, don't we? Second Saturday that we go to church on occasionally. But what if we just took a day out of our week and said, you know what, I'm not going to entertain myself on that day. Um, I'm not going to, I'm going to worship the Lord. I'm going to be around believers. I'm going to be with my family. And and I'm going to get into the word. I'm going to pray. We're going to worship. What if you did, imagine if you gave 52 whole days a year to God. Think about that. Out of 365. But we, we, we hardly can get by with one a week, right? Um, you know, are you meeting four or five times a month? All year long? Yeah, imagine if you just rested and worshiped God. Now, I realize you have, some of you have jobs of necessity that require you to, to be gone on Sundays, etc. But, but the idea that we take a day and worship God and rest and get away from our recreation um, in the way that is pleasing us like on a Saturday and focus on him. Just the idea that we focus on. I'm not saying you can't throw a football around and focus on God. Of course you can. But the idea that we take time aside and focus on him. We violate that all the time. Fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. I don't know a child who hasn't been disobedient. Do you? And then people say, well, I wasn't a disobedient child. And they say, okay, well, um, your mom and dad, as they get older, are you going to take care of them? Because according to Jesus in Matthew 15, that's an application of honor your father and mother. Take care of them in their old age. We have a culture that throws away the elderly. Just throw away. That population is old and they're inconvenient. 
But Matthew 15 is pretty clear about our responsibility to them. It's from cradle to grave. Sixth commandment, you know, don't murder. Jesus says, hey, have you ever hated anybody? You ever wanted ill to happen to somebody? Seventh commandment, don't commit adultery. Jesus says, you ever lusted in your heart after another woman or man? Eighth commandment, don't steal. So I've never committed theft. Well, let me ask you this. You ever taken part of your work day? You're not the boss, but you're at work and you take part of your day to play around on the internet when it's work hours? That's theft. That isn't your time. That's your boss's time. Right? Ninth commandment, lying, bearing false witness. We've all done it, haven't we? Tenth commandment, coveting your neighbor's wife, house, boat, car. I, I, if you haven't committed that, if you, if you honestly claim that's never happened to you, then, then you're, you've got a problem with the ninth commandment and, and several other issues going on in life. But you understand, you understand what I'm saying here? The law demonstrates that we're sinners, that we can't keep it. Second, the law stimulates our sin. Not only does it demonstrate we're sinners, it stimulates our sin. Look at verse 8. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. What is Paul saying here? Because we are so sinful, we can use anything as an opportunity to sin. It was Paul hearing the command, do not covet, that led him into covetousness, he said. Covetousness he didn't even know he was interested in, by the way. He heard, don't covet, and guess what he wanted to do? Covet. That's how much we love to rebel, right? For us, rebellion against authority is kind of sexy. It's exciting, right? You know you kind of want to all the time. They have a fire alarm. I don't know about you, but I went through all of high school wanting to pull that sucker because it says, do not pull. just wanted to see what would happen if I pulled this thing, right? Because it said, do not pull. If it said, do not pull, I may have ignored it. You know, they have, don't touch this. You want to touch it, right? Because they told you not to. That's what happens in our, God tells us, don't do this. We want to do it. What Paul means by apart from the law, sin lies dead is this. That our sin, our hearts want to pervert what is holy. We want to rebel against authority. And so until the law comes and shows us what is holy and shows us the authority that we're supposed to keep, Sin doesn't really come alive in the fullest sense that it can. So the law stimulates our sin to show that we are really very sinful because God gives us a clear law and the first thing our hearts want to do is pervert it. So it shows us not only that we are sinners who can't keep it, but that it actually stimulates sin. Our hearts are so wicked that when we hear God's holy commands, we want to disobey It doesn't stimulate us to righteousness. It stimulates us to more unrighteousness. Three, the law slays us as sinners. Look at what it says in verse 9. I was once alive, Paul says. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. What does Paul mean by I once was alive apart from the law? Look, he's a believer looking back on his state of unbelief, 
on his experience as an unbeliever and his thoughts at that time that he was righteous, he was spiritually alive, and then he saw his own sinfulness. Leon Morris, who is a commentator out of Australia, said it this way, he is alive in the sense that he has never been put to death as a result of a confrontation with the law of, go- uh, law of God. Never been put to death as a result of the confrontation with the law of God. These are the people who think they're good people, right? I've been a good person. I'm going to get into heaven because this is where we were, wasn't it? I'm going to get into heaven because my good works outweigh my bad. Yeah, I do bad things, but my good works outweigh my bad. You know, I've been pretty good. And look at the external righteousness in my life. As Kevin Lewis has said in here before, one of my professors from Biola, it's, it's like us going before a judge and saying, yes, Your Honor, I, I, I ran that stop sign. I'm guilty of running that stop sign. However, I should be found not guilty because I stopped at 10 other stop signs before and 10 other stop signs after. So you shouldn't penalize me for running that one. That's how we do it, right? We take our good works and we try to add them up against our bads. We're okay. We don't recognize how really radically sinful we are. He went on to say that it's like standing before the judge after you've murdered someone and saying, I know I murdered that person, but I'm not guilty because I let all the other people on earth live. And that's kind of the case we try to make, isn't it? You still have to pay the penalty for that sin. We often, though, live like the rich young ruler, don't we? Who comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, what, do I, what do I have to do to inherit eternal Jesus says, well, keep the Ten Commandments. I've done that. He says, well, then sell all you have and give it to the poor. Come follow me. And the rich young ruler walks away sad. Why? Because he was violating the first commandment, wasn't he? He had another God before him. This was the problem with the Pharisee and the publican. You guys know the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector? They go into the temple, and the Pharisee's praying, and the tax collector, you know, this is like, tax collector's like the bottom of the barrel, scum of the earth, right? And um, that's how we feel about them now. They felt even more so about them then, right? I mean, beyond anything you can imagine, betrayal against your nation. They were like the Benedict Arnolds of the country, okay? So tax collector's in there. And the Pharisees in there, these are the, the, these are the conservative right-wing righteous guys, right? These are the guys that are like, man, that guy's got it going all together. And they're in there praying, temple, and the Pharisees saying, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like that tax collector. That's his prayer. Thank you I'm not like him. I'm not a sinner the way he is. And the tax collector beats his chest and says what? Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says that one he'll go back to his house justified and not the Pharisee because he recognized he was a sinner and he needed mercy. He wasn't caught up with his own self-righteousness. You see, in the church, we love to talk about people's need to repent from their sin in the sense that we, when we think about sin, we think about it as the really obnoxious kind of deeds, right? But what we don't tend to call people to repent of is their self-righteousness, their idea that their good deeds add something to their salvation. They might not ever state it that way. They basically believe it. I was that way for several years. All the way through high school, I felt like I was, um, you know, I believed that I was saved by Jesus, but for the most part, I thought, well, Jesus owed it to me. He had to go to the cross for me. I'm a good person. Of course, he's going to save me, right? I haven't done any of the bad things I've seen done, especially for me the big sin was drunk driving. 
because my father had been killed by a drunk driver. So for me, that was the bottom of the barrel. You drink, drink and drive, you are the... I've never done that until um, October 5th of 1991 when I did it. And then I woke up um, after passing out and realized I had done it. And I realized, um, wow, you, you're no different than that teenage drunk driver who killed your dad. The only difference between you and him is that no one got in your way. God was merciful to you, a sinner. And I turned to him at that point and recognized I had to repent of my self-righteousness, not just my sins in that sense. Fourth, the law substantiates God's holiness, justice, and desire to do us good. The law substantiates God's holiness, justice, and desire to do us good. Look at what Paul says in verse 12. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The law is a reflection of God's character, and it shows us, proves to us, that our God is holy. He's perfect in every way. He has no impurity. He has no sin. He is a consuming fire. He dwells in unapproachable light. That is our holy God. No blemish. And when we see the law, we recognize how we cannot possibly stack up to God's holiness. The law is righteous or just because God who gave it is righteous and just. The law is holy because the giver of the law is holy. God will always act justly. And the law demonstrates that we are justly condemned. We've broken all the Ten Commandments. We are sinners. The law is good or beneficial. You know why? Because God is good and wants to show us favor. God is always good and wants to work for our benefit, for our good. God is for us, and so he gives us a law to show us we're sinners and under his judgment. To show us his righteous standard. Because he's for us, his enemies who were against him. He gave to us a law to point us to the gospel because he's for us. Even when he gave the Ten Commandments, what does he give right after he gives the Ten Commandments? You know what he gives? He gives a sacrificial system. Why? To atone for the sin when they violate those, all to point forward to the coming Savior, Jesus. Second, the gospel demonstrates. Here's the second major point. The gospel demonstrates that God kept his holy standard for us. Kept his holy standard for us. The law needs to be kept, but it can't be, so God kept it in Christ. Jesus, Jesus is the law's goal or end. It pointed forward to him. He kept the law. He kept both its penalty, that's what's due to us, our condemnation for our sin, and he kept its precept. That's the positive commands, living the righteous, perfect life that we failed to. Jesus kept both. Theologians often talk about this as um, his active and passive obedience. Active and passive obedience are words that are often 
tossed around. They're often misunderstood. A lot of people think active and passive obedience means, you know, during his life he actively obeyed, and so that's his active obedience. And then on the cross, he went to the cross as his father commanded, and he paid the penalty. That's his passive obedience. That isn't exactly how active and passive obedience are understood. What theologians mean when they say that is, throughout Jesus' life, from beginning to end, from the time he was born to the time that he died on the cross, he obeyed the Father in every command the Father gave him. That's active obedience, including the command to die on the cross. His passive obedience, that's, that's him keeping the precepts of the law. His passive obedience is that from the time Jesus was born, really conceived, until the time he died on the cross, he suffered in our place. He suffered for us. He is suffering, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, eternally with the Father, condescends to be a man. At that point, he's humiliated himself, hasn't he? And then he puts himself under his own law, humiliating himself. He kept the precept, that's the commands of the law, and he took on himself the penalty of the law. Paul says this briefly in Romans 5, 18 and 19. He says this, Therefore, as one trespass, that's Adam's, led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, that's Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Look with me at Romans 10 briefly, since you're in Romans 7. Look at Romans 10 briefly. Look what Paul says here as he's praying. He's talking about the gospel. He's talking about his Jewish brothers and sisters who were lost. And he says this, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Mind you, he is talking about the people of the covenant, the people who were children of Abraham in the sense they descended from him. They were given the law. They were brought out of the land of Egypt. These people, his prayer, his desire for them is that they may be saved because they're not. And he goes on and explains why. I bear them witness, verse 2, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They're passionate about God, but they don't know the truth. There's a case, by the way, for the fact that passion is not what saves you. Sincerity doesn't save you. If you sincerely believe in the wrong things, you're still damned. If you want to see the height of sincerity, the guys that ran the planes into the Twin Towers, those guys were sincere. They were not Christians. But they were sincere about their faith, weren't they? But Paul says they're not saved because their sincerity, their zealousness is not according to knowledge. And what is the knowledge that they miss? Verse 3. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God. Righteousness comes from God. And look at, and seeking to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. What does that mean? Look verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the telos. He's the goal. He's the end. It all pointed to him. The holy law of God was never able to be kept to such a degree that we could attain righteousness before him. Do you understand that? Never. The Ten Commandments were not given so that the Jews would be saved by obeying them. They were never given for that purpose. They were given to demonstrate their sin. They were given to help manage their nation. 
They were given to give them, show them a life of godliness, what it looks like. But they were never given to save them. They always pointed forward to the Messiah, to Jesus. Always. So how did Jesus keep the law? Galatians 4, 4, Paul says this. says, in the fullness of time, that means all of history was pointing forward to this, and all of history looks back on this. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, that's Jesus, born of a woman, born under the law. That phrase ought to blow you out. That the God of the universe was born subject to the law. He became obedient to his own law for us. Luke actually lays out what it looks like. Luke, I mean, several of the gospel writers, frankly, lay out what it looks like that Jesus, that Jesus submitted himself to the law, that he was born under the law. In fact, Luke goes to great pains. When Jesus is born, he talks about his circumcision. He goes to the temple to get circumcised. He goes there for the purpose of purification for his mom, etc. Every time he does, Luke points out it was according to the law of Moses. It was according to the law of the Lord. Luke shows him obeying his parents in his childhood. So from the time he's born, he's obeying in our place. Why? Because God commanded that all the males of Israel would be circumcised. And so Jesus was circumcised according to the law of the Lord. God commanded purification rites after birth for the mother, etc. And so Jesus' family went through that. God commanded that children obey their parents. And so Luke shows Jesus obeying his parents. Luke even talks about the fact that Jesus grows in wisdom and stature and favor with God and with man. In other words, he was increasingly learning about God, increasingly obeying him. Matthew picks up from there and talks about when Jesus first comes to get baptized. There's a big long gap, and then all of a sudden Jesus shows up for baptism and start his ministry. And what does Matthew say have happened? Jesus comes to John the Baptist and he says, um, I need you to baptize me. And John the Baptist says, No way. No way, you should baptize me. And Jesus says, you, you need this. It's necessary to fulfill all righteousness. He's talking about necessary to fulfill all righteousness. What Jesus is saying is, look, John, God gave a commandment to the people of Israel through you, his prophet. He gave a commandment through, to the people of Israel through you, his prophet. And he said, the commandment is that you need to be baptized. So, you know, it's baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. You need to do that. And so I'm going to submit to that because God's commanded it. Not because I sinned, but because I'm going to keep God's commandments and everything in your place. The Gospel of John, he picks up on this, talking about over and over again how Jesus says things like, my food is to do the will of my Father. It's all I want to do. I want to do the will of my Father. As Jesus talking about, I kept your word and everything. I, I, I obeyed you in everything. I didn't do anything that my father didn't tell me to do. Hebrews 4.15 talks about it this way. He was tempted in every way just as we are yet without sin. In other words, Jesus was tempted to violate the Ten Commandments. You thought about that? Jesus was tempted to lust, but he didn't. Jesus was tempted to hate people, but he didn't. Jesus was tempted to lie, but he didn't. Jesus was tempted to commit idolatry. We see that. Satan specifically tempts him in that area, but he didn't. That's my hope. 
My hope when I fail to keep that commandment is that Jesus didn't fail to keep that commandment. And his righteousness is credited to me. Even the flow of Matthew's gospel shows that Jesus was going to be this new or better Moses, this new or better Israel, that he was going to take the place of his people. The flow of the gospel, it's an interesting gospel. It starts off with Jesus after he's born. He goes to Egypt and then he comes out. And there's this quotation from Hosea 11.1 1, where it says, out of Egypt I called my son, referring to Israel and going back to Exodus 4 where Israel is in the singular called God's son. Out of Israel, I called my son. In other words, the nation of Israel is God's son. And it says that of Jesus, out of Egypt, I called my son. Why? Because Israel was called out of Egypt, right? And so now Jesus is called out of Egypt in his place. And Matthew patterns the flow of his gospel this way. It's interesting. He then, Jesus then, after he's called out of Egypt, Matthew then has him going to be baptized. I mean, first he says he goes to Nazareth and all that. But then he has him going to be baptized when he grows up. It's the next big thing you see on the scene. And he's baptized and he goes into the water. Just like the Jews, Israel, went through the Red Sea. And if you think I'm making a funky comparison between baptism and the Red Sea, go read 1 Corinthians 10. You'll see it there. Because Paul makes that comparison. So he goes into the water as God's son. Just as Israel went through the Red Sea. And then he comes out and he's in the wilderness. What happens after Jesus' baptism? Jesus goes into the wilderness to be tempted. Israel was tempted for 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus goes through those same temptations. In fact, Matthew lays out the same or very similar language that Israel went through. Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Moses fasted 40 days and 40 nights, Mount Sinai. And then after that, what does Jesus do? He goes up on the mount and gives the sermon on the mount. And what does Moses do? He's up on the mountain and he gives what? The Ten Commandments from the mountain. And what does Jesus preach on? The beginning of his sermon, Sermon on the Mount, is the Ten Commandments. Where he lays them out for people. And what is he saying? He's saying, I'm a new and better Moses. I'm a new and better Israel. I am the true son of God. I am the true Israel. I am the great prophet, and I'm the great priest, and I am the great king. It all points to me. He says this in Matthew 5. He says, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. You see, that's, that's why... Believers, we have to continue to uphold the holiness of the law because Jesus does. Because the Word of God says it's holy. It didn't cease to be true. What do you do with it now, believers? First, you recognize continually that as you violate it, Jesus didn't. And that's your hope. And He paid the penalty for you violating it, so you're forgiven. And He kept it perfectly in your place, so that's credited to you. You're seen, guys, as one who never lusted. Think of it. You're seen, ladies, as one who's never coveted someone else's stuff. When you fail, when you fail, believers, you realize that Jesus didn't. He was righteous in your place. He paid your penalty. And he credits that to you through faith. The other thing that you can do with the law besides that, by the way, is not only recognize that you're a sinner, that it's all mercy, that you're thankful for what he's done, but second, 
it's a good standard to follow. It is still God's law. You still keep it and live by it, believers. It is still a standard of righteousness for you. It doesn't save you. It was never meant to. It was never meant to. Second, if you're an unbeliever in here, you don't know Jesus. You don't know him. You haven't trusted in him. You think your good outweighs your bad. You think your sin can't possibly be paid for. Oh, Chad, you don't understand how heinous what I've done is. Recognize that whatever you've done, how heinous it is, it cannot, cannot be heinous enough, cannot be heinous enough to outdo the sacrifice that Jesus paid on the cross. It cannot be a great enough sin to make of no effect the murder the punishment of God's Son in your place. Cannot. So repent. Turn to Him. Trust Him. Know His grace. Rejoice in Him and His holy law. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful. We are thankful for You and what You've done. Thankful that You were gracious enough to give us a law a holy standard to demonstrate our sinfulness and to give us a Christ who would fulfill it for us, who would pay its penalty on our behalf, who would live it perfectly on our behalf, that not only forgiven, but that righteousness is credited to our account. We're counted as holy because of him. We're thankful for that. Lord, we're thankful that that law is a good guide for us as believers helps us to live with you in a way that honors you and brings you glory. We pray we would be faithful to it. We would never see it as saving in any way. We would know that that work was done by Jesus alone and is received through faith alone. But that because of our love for you, because of the work that you've done in our hearts, making us new, giving us a love for your law, we would keep it faithfully. Lord, we pray for those who don't know you, that they would turn to you and trust you and you alone for their salvation. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.